Today's passage comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Last Sunday was a very exciting Sunday in our launch service, and uh, there, there are a lot of like people in this room and very few empty seats, and now we're a little bit back to so-called more, no, actually, this is a little bit less than normal. Um, one of the things I just want to say before we get into the message is, you know, this is, this is our new chapter, and um, some of you, you know, I know a number of you invited your friend to just try our church, you know, say, or try church at all, and and then maybe a number of them didn't come. And, and what I want to say is maybe you were disappointed by that, but that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, just gently ask them to come to the picnic, <laughs> right? Or, um, you know, gently share with them, you know, like we're, just, we're shooting out these little highlights and clips of sermons. And if you see something that you think um, is relevant or will be interesting to one of your friends, just gently offer it to them and then... Ask them to come three weeks from now or three months from now. And, um, and it's not ever going to be about us. And so if you're here and you do not consider us a follower of Jesus, we love that you're here. Okay? And, uh, and so thank you for coming. And I just want to say to you know, all our, our, our church family, um, don't ever be too worried about it. Don't be discouraged by it. Um, we're, we're here in this community. We're not going away. And the Holy Spirit is going to use us and, you know, and the name of Jesus is going to go forward um, right outside of these walls and uh, draw people to, you know, the, the true Savior and to the truth of the gospel, okay? Um, let's get into today's word. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This is the passage I preached on last week. And in a number of ways, this is where we're going to pick. I'm going to preach on this again next week. This is a history-changing word. These words have um, literally changed history. <laughs> uh, you know, history is going this way, and then people read these things, and it because what is that? It has profoundly changed um, not just individual lives, lives of nations and history. And I, I thought this was really so much. Um, you know, this is, this, is the, this is a powerful word that I would like as we launch off into our community um, to take a really good look at. And last week, I talked mostly about the power for salvation. And I said something about how everybody's looking for salvation, even though you don't, we don't necessarily call it salvation. That there is a way in the Bible that what we're looking for is a, a completion of, of ourself, a self-fulfillment. And that also is a very biblical and true way that the Bible sees salvation. And then I also said that the power for that really lies in our righteousness. And, but there's a real problem. In this world, the righteousness, or as I really talked about last week, our worthiness. So that we're all looking to seek and fulfill our own life and find our own identity, and then we have to serve something bigger and more glorious in our life. And if we can serve beauty, or if we can be, become successful in our career, or, or the one that really kind of was, was the one that was the trap for me, was if you could be a really smart guy, then your life will be fulfilled. But it's a trap, right? It's a trap. And because that's a righteousness or a worthiness that you're going to do. You have to attain it. And if you don't attain it, then your life will be failed and you'll lost and you'll know it. And you know who's going to say that your life has failed? Well, you will. You'll be the one who tell yourself your life failed. But the thing that I really wanted you to hear last week was, what if you actually can attain it? What if you are gorgeous and you could become a supermodel? All right, you're probably not going to be a supermodel. What if you're just the prettiest woman in school <laughs> or at your work or at your church and everybody tells you you're gorgeous and the men treat you better and the women treat you better and the kids follow you around because you're the prettiest person. But then over time, 
that righteousness, that worthiness, this thing that's going to shape your life is going to rot. And it's a righteousness that we're seeking. It has nothing to do with God. It's got to be from us. It's got to be. And this is how we're going to complete our life. That's what I talked about last week. And what we really need is what this passage says. For in it, verse 17, for in it, for in the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is what we're talking about today. What we need is not a righteousness from me or from you. A righteousness that you think you're going to, if you do this and you just work really hard in it, and then I'm telling you, if you don't get it, your life is lost. But this is also a terrible part. If you do get it, your life is still lost. And what I want to talk about today is we want to, I want to move deeper into this theme because this is a really, really important idea. It's something that I, I think that is missing um, in our culture. And um, it's sad to say, I don't really want to get too mean toward other churches, but churches don't teach this, okay? Um, it's not an easy thing to teach, but that most people think that when they go to church, what Christians just really want to do is be better and more cleaned up people. And there's a lot in the Bible about how to be a more righteous and better human being. Because, well, everybody knows we're not, so there's something in us that's incomplete and that we got to get better. So you don't have to be a Christian. You can, you can be an atheist and everybody knows there's all kinds of ways that we're urged to be better. America is the country of self-improvement, okay? You know, the, the self-improvement section at the bookstore is never going to not have bestsellers in America, okay? So that's the country we are in. But... What is not taught, even in churches today, is the righteousness that you're going to use to make yourself such a good person is not good enough. So today's message I've entitled, The Problem, The Massive, Humongous, The Supreme Problem of Righteousness. Because the world thinks that if you know what the right rules and standards and explanations are, and we just need to be browbeaten with them. And if, the, if, the, if it's emphasized enough, and if we're coached enough and pushy enough, and everybody does the right things, then our life will turn out good, and then we got to get stop people doing the bad things. We do need help on that. But let me just ask you something. Does that work? Is that working? If we just keep repeating more and more, try harder, be better, this will be better, this will work for you. If you do this, you, you, know, you, you will lose weight. If you do this, you'll be nicer. If you do this, your children won't, won't, you know, won't be so mean and so angry. If you do this, you know, maybe your wife will like you better. Right? If you do this, the poor, the poor will actually be better off. If we do this, our society won't be so racist. If we'll be just better, we'll be better people. That's all the question of righteousness. But it does not work. It does not work. And that's what I mean by the problem of righteousness. So inside of the issue of righteousness, we need a bigger and better righteousness. So that's the intro. Let me say this in three parts. Part one, sin sickness and the tragedy of polluted righteousness. I want to give you the Bible's perspective on what it means that we're trying to be a better, better people. Okay, that's kind of like the modern way of saying, we, we need to be a better people. We need to be good. But the word there is righteous. But part one, sin sickness and the tragedy of polluted righteousness. Part two, the cancer of pride. Except for Christians, almost nobody talks about it. But it's there everywhere. It's like colorless odorless, invisible. <laughs> it's like the colorless, odorless, invisible poison, cancer. It's in everybody. <laughs> the cancer of pride and how it poisons everything, and especially righteousness. It doesn't just poison certain things. It poisons especially how we try to be good. <laughs> and I'll close, because if, Pride is a huge part of the problem. The answer is the balm of humility. The balm of humility. And let me just say a little bit some list before I um, continue. There's probably the vast majority of us, and I mean like 99.9%, maybe 1% listening, to, one person listening to this message, and it's probably not me, right? Don't know how to be humble. 
don't know how to be humble and we don't have the power to be humble. We need a power of God for the balm of humility and a righteousness from the cross. The balm of humility and a righteousness from the cross. Okay, part one. All right. Um, I want to take us to Genesis chapter three. And for those of you who maybe isn't familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Um, chapter one is God made everything. Chapter two, God made everything really beautiful. And then there's, then he put this couple and it was absolutely glorious. Genesis chapter three is basically everything got totally screwed up. It's called the fall. And, um, so you have these two human beings. You got Adam and Eve. I know some of you think this is a myth, but you know, we won't get into that, all right? Um, and they talk to the serpent. And for those of you, you know, most of you grew up in Sunday school or you, you heard this in school somewhere along the line, you know that there is one prohibition. There is a tree called the knowledge of good and evil. And that fruit you cannot eat. Everything else... It's totally, it's yours, okay? But God said, don't go here. Don't even touch that fruit, let alone eat it. And then there's a conversation that happens. It starts, this conversation actually starts with Eve. And Eve has a conversation with the serpent. And uh, the Bible readers over the years know that this serpent is, well, the devil. <laughs> and the devil says this. It says that if you touch that fruit... You're not going to die. God says you're going to die. In other words, first, it's just a straight-up challenge of God's truthfulness. You're not going to die. That's not going to happen. Huh? And says, what's going to happen is you will be like God. You will be as God. That was, that was the promise. And this week, what I've been doing is I've been reading kind of actually a lot of different commentaries on Genesis. And... Um, one of the commentary sets I've got is called the Ancient Christian Commentary Series. And uh, these are some of the, like, the finest Bible readers from like 2000, or, like maybe some are 1,500 years ago, some are 1,800 years ago, etc. Um, the one I was particularly paying attention to is one of the greatest Bible readers of all time is a guy named Augustine. Okay? And when Augustine reads this portion, this conversation that's going on between Eve and then later uh, um, and then Adam, about why you can and can't touch this fruit. You know, Augustine had this really interesting commentary on the nature of sin. He thinks there's a movement towards sin before they even touch the fruit. <laughs> Where did it start? It starts from the desire itself. Before they've even touched the fruit, there is an idea <laughs> in your mind. And the idea is, if I go do this thing, then God will, like, will, will be like God. It's, this is really interesting because they were made to be like God. They're the most special creature ever made. They're made in the image of God. So they already are like God. But he's saying, you will grasp God and then, then his rules and his truth. So you can have your own truth. That's the way we say it today. You know, I'm glad you have your truth. I have my truth, right? You can have your truth. You don't have to have God's truth. And Augustine says, there is a movement and that desire so that you would be the top person who gets to have your way, your rules, your truth, your reign is pride. <laughs> now, I want to just back off just a bit. Um, I don't know if you know this, but sin, I know that like our culture doesn't like that word, okay? But um, it's actually very helpful to understand a little something about um, the nature of sin itself. We live in a very, very shallow culture. And um, it's shallow because outside of the church, people don't understand sin and they don't even like the word. And then I would even say that very often inside the church, people don't understand sin and, um, don't un and, and often they don't like the word either. But I want to tell you something that um, a lot of people don't understand. Sin is a multifaceted reality. Most people tend to think of sin in a fa fairly simplistic fashion. There's a rule, you break that rule, now you sinned, okay? So, you know, don't commit adultery. But then Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's like, whoa, right? 
And so Jesus even deepened that rule. And then if you break that rule, now you've committed sin. So like, you know, now just made it like virtually every man in the room. Now you know you sinned, right? It's because you break that rule. Or like, don't steal. And by the way, that's not just about stealing some physical object. It's like um, uh, you're, you walk into the room and um, you want to be the center of attention. And so you do this cute little thing over here and now all the attention goes to you. You just stole the attention from somebody else and maybe they should have the attention. And well, that's a sin. <laughs> that's a piece of, I mean, I, you don't, nobody thinks of it as sin. But you broke this rule, which actually has much deeper wisdom and principles about how we're supposed to treat each other and be. Now that's sin, but that's not all there is to it. (laughs) There's not all this to it. Let me, I just gave you one, which I want to talk about today, which is the one that almost everybody ignores, which is that of pride, okay? But let me just give you some other aspects of sin, all right? This is all part of sin. Blindness. It's part of sin. You don't see what you need to see. You just don't get it. You don't see it. The biggest thing we're blind about is God. <laughs> You're blind about God. Um, I'll, I'll use a slightly strange example on this thing. I think that as soon as you look at creation and you think that maybe creation came from God, I, I think it's impossible not to see it. <laughs> you just don't, you can't not see it. Like um, one of the, the examples I've given to you is um, you guys have seen that uh, that famous uh, that famous um, documentary Planet Earth, <laughs> and there's this uh, it's, it's one of my favorite sequences. There's this little bird, and he's he's like a little bird in South America. He hops around and he takes he takes like this uh, leaf and he kind of like sweeps off this area, <laughs> right? And then he actually cleans off his special area and then he does this little dance, and you know what the dance is for? To attract the girl. <laughs> And they somehow got this on video. And when I watched that thing, I, started, I wanted to laugh and I wanted to cry. And I said, how could that have happened without God? If you believe that natural selection can explain all that, <laughs> you can explain, natural selection can purely explain all that. All that happened totally by chance. There was nothing supernatural that could make that bird do a dance for a girl. <laughs> Right? And, uh, well, people don't see it, though. They just don't. They don't see it. <laughs> they just don't see it. You got kids who grew up in church. They don't see it. <laughs> it's blindness. <laughs> There's all kinds of words in the Bible um, that I think if you read them and then you just kind of, you know, put it at some kind of like purely like objective level. Is this actually true in the world? Then you go into, like for instance, sin. Like we're talking about righteousness. I'm going to describe to you the question of righteousness and how the Bible looks at righteousness. I don't think it's a matter of doctrine. It's not a matter of doctrine. I think if you're just an honest human being, you would have to recognize that the way I'm describing the question of the problem of righteousness and sin is totally real. And it does not matter whether you're rich, poor, white, black, Asian. It does not matter. Okay, it does not matter. I've been in multiple different cultures. It's like, this problem is, it's, it's there. This is the problem. It is an absolutely objectively real truth. Absolutely, utterly universal. So it's not like some kind of cultural imperialism coming from like Western white Christianity and they're going to impose this word, word on everybody else. That's totally false. If you just take this with a little bit of like, honest, like, is this actually true about the world? It absolutely is. And then if you want to read history, it gets even worse. You read history, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything works. I'm talking about blindness. Blindness is a part of the sin sick condition. Let's get some some of the other ones. Um, uh, Ignorance. It kind of goes together. You don't see it, hence you don't know anything about it. So um, I'll give you a slightly different um, example. And um, there's a lot of people today who think, they're going to have a great, they're going to meet the love of their life and then it's just going to be great for the rest of their life. That is unbelievably ignorant. <laughs> that is supremely ignorant. But it is, unbel- it is like, it is totally believed. It is, that's ignorance. <laughs> crazy, crazy ignorance. Okay? That's part of sin. 
And the third aspect of sin, rebellion. So, you have a father, or you have a coach, or you have a teacher, and they tell you something totally true, and it's really, really good, and they have all the best intentions for you. So I'm not talking about somebody mean, you know, who's like, you know, who's like some abusive father, or, you know, like a tyrant of a coach, or a lazy teacher. I'm talking about good, you know, as, as best as you got. And they tell you this, something that's really good for you, and it's really totally true, and if you actually listen, good and beautiful things will come out of your life. But you know what? Almost every single one of us, this little thing happens inside your heart. Screw that. <laughs> no. No. You know? It's a rebellion. And so it has nothing to do with how good the thing is, what they're trying to do. It's just something inside of you is so screwed up that like, you know, the middle finger of your, of your heart just arises, <laughs> right? And uh, it's like, and it's supposed to be, this, it's supposed to be to people you love, like your, your mother, your mother. You know, once, I'm, I'm, this, I'm, not, uh, um, I'm not really uh, proud of this. Once uh, I was home from college, um, I was about 21 years old, and my mom said this thing to me, which I heard like for a thousandth time, and I just didn't want to hear it. And she was just being super kind, and I, I used a bad word against her. I'd never done that before. Right? And later on that evening, she called me and she was bawling. She said, how could you use that word to me? And I adore my mom. <laughs> and to this day, I, I always wish I could take that back. <laughs> take that back. You could just take that word back <laughs> and then shoot yourself because <laughs> you deserve to die for saying that to your mom. Right? Rebellion. So, um, one more, unbelief. You just don't believe. All the evidence is there. All the kindness is there. It's all true. Okay, this is how crazy it is. The person's in church. They call themselves a Christian. Their pastor is always kind to them. Not, not, that's not me. That's like one of your other pastors, okay? <laughs> and their parents are actually good Christians. They self-identify. I'm talking about like some young person grew up in church. They self-identify as a Christian. They know the Bible is true. They say the Bible is true. I believe the Bible is true. This word comes out. It's presented to you. And then you just don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if the person didn't grow up in church, they don't know anything about this, and they're not even sure if Christians are good people or if Christianity... Okay, of course, you know, that actually seems rational that they might not, they'll have unbelief. But even if you stack up every advantage possible, there's still unbelief. There's unbelief in the head. There's unbelief in the heart. Um, I had a mentor, his name is Pastor Kyung Lee, and he once said this to me. He says, some people believe up here. <laughs> he goes, but somehow, like, like, it doesn't get down here. And then he, he said this. He says, the distance between here to here is a really long way. <laughs> That's the way he put it. So you got a kid. So mom and dad, you're going to say it's your child. You know we love you, right? And then they're like, yeah, I know you love me. And at that moment, they believe that in their head, but not in their heart. And we're like this to God. And, there's, and, and, and now it gets worse. It's all of it, all together, okay? All of it. It's um, blindness, ignorance, rebellion, unbelief. Rebellion, by the way, what does that lead to? It leads to broken relationships. What does unbelief lead to? Distrust. I don't believe what you're saying. That's how you, by the way, you know if somebody actually believe what you're saying. If they tame their head that they believe what you're saying, but they don't actually trust you from their heart, they don't actually believe it. <laughs> That's how it works. So if I say to you, hey, I'm going to sell you a ticket. It's the winning lottery ticket. Come up here and give me $10. 
okay? And you're like, the pastor never lies. Oh my gosh, it might actually be true. You believe in your head, okay? You know how I'll know if you'll actually believe me? Because you actually trust me and come here and hand me $10. That's, then you really believe. You actually trust. But all these things when we don't, it's like we say it, but then we don't actually have it. And it's all these forms of distress. So all these things are working together and pride. <laughs> and pride. And it's all there. So sin is not something that you can kind of like discipline yourself away. Or, you know, you could, if those of you have really good discipline, which is very few of you, you can actually stop eating bad junk food, okay? And if you can do that, you're a far better person than me because that's never going to happen for me, okay? I could say, okay, it'll happen for like maybe a week, okay? And, but if we can't even not eat junk food, most of us, you think you can control that? You think you can control blindness, ignorance, unbelief, distrust, and pride? This is what we're talking about here. Now, um, uh, let's stop. That's plenty bad enough, okay? Um, let's go to part two. The cancer of pride and how it poisons righteousness, okay? Um, I want to say a little something about pride now. Most people think pride is, look at me, look how great I am. <laughs> That's not what pride is. It's just half of the story. That's only half of it. One of the things that what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is when God, when we fell, and then God dropped out of our life and out of the world, what happened was all his light dropped out of the world and all of his love and that which fills our hearts to make us feel like we matter, that dropped out of the world. <laughs> um, Augustine's one of the great Bible readers of all time. Let me, let me give you another one. And for all of you records, you've heard me say this. It's Martin Luther. And you know how he talks about sin? So this is Martin Luther. I think it's his definition of pride. It's like this is where like Martin Luther and Augustine meet. And he calls sin and particularly pride the incurvatus of the soul. <laughs> and what does incurvatus mean? That means your soul curves in on itself. Why does it do that? It does that because you don't feel like you have any worth inside of you. You have to have like something that makes you matter that makes you special, that somebody should pay attention to you and love you and care about you. And if you don't have anything like that, then you are nothing, <laughs> less than nothing. And so if God isn't in there and his love for you doesn't fill you up, his truth for you doesn't fill you up, his kindness doesn't fill you up. And you know what? That's for most of us, even including Christians. It often doesn't fill us up. We actually feel more like it's empty and if you don't know God at all, it's pretty empty. So you know what? Your soul is never looking up and outward and full of joy and confidence. Your heart and your soul is always looking this way. That's what pride is. It's the self-preoccupation of the soul. And so it goes both ways. If you think you're so great, I'm so great, pride. That's the one that we all hate when somebody else is that way. But you know what? It also goes the other way. I'm so not much. So... Um, my wife and I talked about this one. You go hang out with a set of people and at, you go to a party and they ask you about something and you're telling them your little story about something about yourself or whatever and then they ask you a question and you want to give a, a smart and cool answer, right? And then when they ask you this question you go, the, and you give an answer and then later on when you're at home you roll the tape, <laughs> It's like, you know, Monday Night Football, instant replay, except it's not about football. It's about you. <laughs> so it's not about the football game. It's about your life. You replay the tape. You then go, why did I say that? Oh, man, I, I must have sounded so stupid. And you know what that is? That's, that's incurvatus of the soul playing itself out. Because you're like, if I just said that, then people will think I'm so much smarter and cooler. Instead, they probably think I... I'm dumb and don't have much and that was a terrible thing to say. They're probably not even thinking that at all. But you are. Can anybody relate to this? 
if you can't relate to this, you, you have the problem on the other side, okay? You're so like, you know, like, I'm so great. This never happens to me, okay? But most of you, if you're human, you're, you've done both. Pride is like the deep, profound schizophrenia of the soul. I am so great. It's all about me. And then I'm so nothing. And I hope nobody finds out. And what I want to say is, you know, we all try to better to be better human beings. And I hope you're trying. I hope you're trying. <laughs> okay. Um, if you're not trying, then you're a sociopath and then we need to lock you up. <laughs> okay. But uh, most, most regular people are trying to be better human beings and you're trying at work. You're trying among your friends. Hopefully you're trying with your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend or the girl that you're trying to be, get to be your girlfriend or your boyfriend, right? But all this stuff mashed together Whenever you are trying to be more righteous and a good person, it's there. <laughs> it's there. Especially the pride part. And um, so what I want to do is I'll just give you like three kind of examples. Um, so the first example, um, let's just talk about uh, romance a little bit, okay? So, hey, I just want to meet somebody who is, um, you know, just... The, my soulmate. They're just going to fit me. And uh, I will just love them and fall in love with them and I'll know they're the right person for me. Um, last night, uh, my kids wanted, well, my, it was my, one of my children, my daughter. Have you, any of you guys ever watched the movie 500 Days uh, of Summer? 500 Days of Summer? Nobody's seen this movie? Okay. The rest of you, <laughs> you should watch it. It's really good. It's like actually one of the more sophisticated romance comedies. And it's, it's like a lot more honest about this. And, um, but the reason I bring this up is, you know, it's a totally normal and good thing that you feel lonely and you want to meet somebody to spend the rest of it. There's no, absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then if you don't want to admit that, I would say to you, that's your pride and your insecurity. And you're not willing to admit, oh, I don't need to meet anybody. That's not true. For 99% plus of you, it's not true. And if you're saying that to other people, and especially if you're saying it to yourself, in curvatus of the soul, you're lying, okay? And you're in denial. But so it's perfectly fine and it's good because God put that desire in us so that we could love somebody for the rest of our life and they could, we could love. But you know what? You meet this person and you're trying to be good to this person and you know what? way we go, the soulmate seems like such a good and perfectly good idea, right? And it's filled with all these things. It's really about you. <laughs> so you have this emptiness in your heart. And if this person will just meet me, this person will just fill the emptiness of my heart. <laughs> I had a pastor friend a number of years ago, super dear brother of mine. And um, he was a big dude. And he was, he, he was a really athletic guy when he was, he was a football player when he was in high school. But then as he grew older, you know, like some of that muscle didn't, be, you know, didn't turn into muscle, right? And he was a bigger guy. And um, he was always self-conscious of how big he was. Very smart, very insightful, very godly, right? And he once said to me in conversation, you know, Susan, I... I want to meet somebody who's going to, um, I, one of the, the, the women that I meet, I really want her to be skinny. <laughs> I really want her to be skinny. And, and I really want her to be at a certain level of pretty so that when people meet the two of us, they won't think I'm ugly. <laughs> Most of us are not honest enough and not honest enough and self-aware enough to know that's in you. <laughs> My pastor friend, he actually straight up said this to me. He's like saying, this is what's screwed up about me. And I cannot like get over this. I can't get over this. And he said, and so here you are. You're just trying to fall in love with somebody, right? And I once said to him, I said, hey, hey, buddy, what if the Lord actually gave you a woman like this? And she was gorgeous and she was skinny and she was tall and all the other stuff. But then what would happen if you guys had two babies 
And then she got diabetes, and then she put on 40 pounds. And he looked at me, and he was like, <laughs> divorces happen over things like this. You know that? They do. Of course, you never, you don't actually say that to your wife. You don't actually say that to your wife. The reason I like you less is because I have this deep incurvatus of the soul that must be filled up. You never say, you, you would never, don't ever say that, husbands. You would never say that. Okay? But in the way you love her, and you're a good husband, right? It's there. That's how your righteousness works. Now, I'm not trying to make somebody in this, I mean, ladies, I'm being nice to you. I could have used the example the other way. I was thinking of this example of a movie that I was thinking of where, where the wife, she liked having nice things, and then her husband lost her job, and then she had an affair with his boss, who was rich, and they got divorced, and then broke their kid. That's real. That's not something in a movie. <laughs> That's real. Let me give you a second example. So, you're all supposed to love the poor. And we, this is the Bay Area. There's a lot of homeless people here. There are a lot of people struggling here. And we're going to have an event. And then we're going to do something for them. So our church has put together care packages. There's socks. There's soap. There's water. There's food. There's a toothbrush. And it's really, really good. So that's something like our church did. Other churches do, do things. I mean, um, this, this church, Trinity, is a beautiful church. They, they, they have an incredible homeless ministry for our neighbors here in Sunnyvale. And then, um, and then we go, hey, come in and be a part of it. So then we volunteer Christians and non-Christians, and we get to go, and then we go do this thing, and then you got to meet the poor person. And then you're going to go do this activity, and you're going to actually genuinely help them. So from an external point of view, you give them this care package, and then, you know what we think? Then this terrible thing happens. Oh, you did it. <laughs> you don't actually say that out loud, of course. What happens is, the incurvatus of the soul, where you're lacking righteousness. We all have this little guilt, like I'm one of the richer people in our city, and I'm not as well, so, so, but I feel kind of guilty about that. And so I will gain some righteousness if I go do this thing, go do this good deed. And so you go and do it. But, you know, you just want it to end as soon as, especially if the homeless person kind of smells or if they talk a little strange because they're mentally ill, and you're like, okay, let's, I gotta find a way to end this conversation really soon so I can just give them the stuff. I know none of you would ever do this, right? So, I mean, just be honest with you. I, everything I'm saying, I've done, <laughs> okay? I've done all this. And like, literally, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm replaying the tape that went through my mind. I'm like, how do we end this conversation soon and act like a good person? That's our righteousness. And so the righteousness is not about loving and serving this person and really being there for them. Really being there for them. It's about if I check this box, <laughs> then I get a little righteousness starred like cosmically somehow on my report card <laughs> in the heavens or something like that. And then I could feel good about myself. And um, when I look around at our culture, especially the Bay Area, the Bay Area is very much a do-good place. I tend to think, I don't know, this is just cynical of me. I tend to think almost all of the stuff that's going on in this area is filled with this. This, and so I'm not against helping the poor. Of course, I'm all for it. I'm not against environmentalism. I'm not even against, we had a literacy thing happen here, and it was beautiful. I loved it. Okay, a thing that was uh, helping, helping underprivileged kids or like the kids who are going to kindergarten at the local school where there's a lot of underprivileged kids at the local elementary school here. And um, I thought it was a beautiful and fantastic event. But there's a part of me that was thinking, yeah, but it's got this poison. It's our righteousness. Our righteousness. 
One more. So, it's in our love life. It's in when we do good deeds. It's in how we do community. So it's not even just in the me, it's in the we. Who do you like to hang out with and who do you identify being together with? Together, These are your peeps. And then you like to hang out with the good people, right? And the good people are the better people. They're the more righteous people. And you hang out with them because this is, this is your community. We call it our community. But there's this thing in our culture that people are calling tribalism. Um, and, uh, and I want to give you a, a quote from something that I, I read this week that I just thought was like, when I read this, I was like, oh, this, that, that stinks. Oh, man, it stings. Um, this came from um, David Brooks. Anybody know who David Brooks is? Uh, David Brooks is one of the most famous columnists in America, best-selling author. And he recently came out a book. Um, he's really interesting. He was, for the longest time, a secular Jew, and recently he's become a Christian. Right? And... Um, and uh, he's, it's actually really controversial in his circles that he's become a Christian. Right? And uh, he wrote this book called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. And he was being interviewed by a guy named Colin Hansen, who uh, works for the Gospel Coalition. And um, he asked him about tribalism. So this is how the conversation goes. A lot of the book is about individuals and then the problems there. But you have drawn an interesting connection between individualism and then the problem of tribalism. It would seem that the problem is individualism because that's what David Brooks, he thinks everybody's about themselves. He thinks individualism is so sick today that before what we used to consider a good thing, individualism, he thinks is so messed up that he thinks we pretty much need to completely throw out individualism because we're so lonely and about the self that we need to get back and run really hard after real community. And, but then he says, if the problem is individualism, then Maybe tribalism kind of brings some of us together and connects us. So can you explain why individualism actually leads to tribalism and why tribalism is not the same as community? That's the question. And here's the answer. David Brooks. Psychologists have a saying that the hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure. Sometimes when we try to solve the problem, we solve it in the wrong way. And that's what tribalism is. Our society, as I've said, at least some people are making it alone. A lot of them are detached. And so they try to solve the problem of being detached by joining a tribe. And tribe seems like community. It's like a form of bonding, but it's actually the dark twin of community because community is built on the mutual love of something. That's the way he puts it. You love your town together. You love your cause together. You love God together. That's community. But tribalism is based on mutual hatred towards something else. <laughs> tribalism is always us against them. It's friend versus enemy. It's, you know, politics is war. Life is a zero-sum game, scarcity mindset. Let's build the walls. Let's erect barriers. It's us, and we got to keep those other people out. So that's what it leads people to gang together and be ganged together, not around love, but around hate. <laughs> not around love, but around hate. So it's great to get together. We're going to be all cool toward each other. But inside of this thing, because we feel loneliness and emptiness, and that loneliness and emptiness of the incurvatus of the soul means we all have to get bound together. And so since we feel a lack of worth, and righteousness in us, we got to gather together the people that if we're together, these are the good guys. <laughs> these are the good guys. And how do we know we're, we're the good guys? Because they're the bad guys. <laughs> you know, there's a Christian way of doing this. There's, of course, a political way of doing this. Gosh, uh, like, um, it's, <laughs> when I was in college, there's like the college way of doing this. There's like my college and we feel better against those guys because we're better than that college. And it wasn't so much we loved our college so much. It was like one of our friends loved our college a lot. The next one was like they just hated them more. Tribalism. <laughs> this is righteousness from us. What do we need? This is what the Bible says. 
In the gospel, verse 17, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. I want to close by giving you another passage from Scripture that talks about the righteousness of God. It's specifically relevant to the question of sin, cancer, and we're empty in ourselves, both that I'm so great and I'm so bad, and we got to fill ourselves to feel better than somebody else. And this is how we do righteousness. It's like, I'm on the right team. I'm with the good people. That, that's how I know I'm good. <laughs> you don't actually say it that way. But that's about as good as righteousness gets in America these days, it feels like. And isn't that so terrible? This is a description of Jesus. Because it's through Jesus that a righteousness of God came into the world. A righteousness from God that if you trust in Jesus and surrender and give your life to Jesus, his righteousness will be credited and will be upon you, upon your name, and then the power of his righteousness will start to come into your life as your life is now united and molded to his life that conquered sin and death. And it's specifically there's a way that there's a righteousness from him and his cross that gets at the issue of pride. And here is, here's the passage. It's Philippians chapter two. Have this mind among yourselves, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, Though he was in the form of God, though he was God, though he's of the essence of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not run after it like, you will be like God, just like the devil said. He turns back exactly what the devil said, according to Augustine. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He did not try to fill himself because we're so empty and we're going to fill ourselves with our own righteousness. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form and human essence. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the righteousness from God. Now, let's just stop for a moment here. This is a really heavy message. <laughs> That's a hard message. And if you ever wrestle with this even just a little bit, you're going to probably go like, wow, I'm a bad person when I do bad things. But if this is really true, and my goodness, it's probably true and pretty much is true. Even when I'm good, I'm not that good. <laughs> but one of the first things that will really help you is if you just say I'm a prideful, really self-centered human being. I'm blind about it. I'm in rebellion about it. I'm in unbelief about it. But this is who I really, really am. But I need to become a better person. And it's not going to come from me. And if this is where you're really at, there is a power for salvation from God. And there is a humility that can come from the one who emptied himself on the cross. You know what the cross is for you? It gives you the chance to empty yourself and never feel like you're nothing. That if you empty yourself along with Jesus, he'll fill you with himself. And his righteousness, and his worthiness, and his mercy, and his acceptance. And you can have a righteousness from God, and we can become truly, fully human. And you can have a much better life. <laughs> your marriage will be better. Your work performance will be better. Your relationship with your kids will be better. And I'm not saying right away, but there'll be a power of righteousness from God and it'll start to unfurl out of your life. This is what we're talking about today. So I'm going to ask us to pray and we're going to go to the table of the Lord and this is to eat of his righteousness. I think we need to eat this badly, don't we? Let's pray.
the world is a pretty rotten place in our hearts. You know, we're always hiding. We barely even trust anybody else. We barely even trust our friends to see what's really inside. It's a sin and that lack of trust and belief. They won't even let us get close to somebody else. And we're so alone. And even when we're trying to be good people, we know, many of us know, Lord, our righteousness, it falls so short. But could it be true that you, who had everything, emptied yourself and humbled yourself so we could have your freedom and your humility? We could actually have self-forgetfulness because our self is totally secure with the love and forgiveness. Real humility is self-freedom. Self-forgetfulness and gladness. And even when we say dumb things, we can laugh at ourselves because we laugh with God. We thank you that this is possible because of you, Jesus. Because you have taken on all our pride and all our blindness and all our rebellion and all our horrible righteousness and had to die with you on the cross so that you can give us something far better, your righteousness and your life. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here today who's never entrusted their life to you, I pray that today, maybe today they could say, dear Jesus, it can't be my righteousness. I'm too messed up. Would you please forgive me and accept me? And I pray that you would encourage them and you would draw them toward you and they could trust and know that you will accept them if they would just say those words to you. And I pray for all of us who still do believe in Jesus that today we would have faith. We wouldn't be in ignorance. We wouldn't be in distrust. We wouldn't be in rebellion. We'd have belief. We'd have belief in our head we'd have real trust and belief in our heart that we can come to the humble God of the cross to receive your humble, self-freeing, healing righteousness. So as we come to your table today, Lord, I pray, Lord, in this seemingly simple means of grace, the healing balm of God's righteousness and humility would go into our hearts not into our stomachs, not just into our mouths, but into our hearts and make us whole like Jesus. In his name.